We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right the, the most famous man of the Anzacs of Gallipoli in France, the man who was revered by the men of the Anzacs in World War I until the day they died, is a man that you've probably never heard of. The Anzacs, when they were in the fighting zones, when they were resting, wherever, he was sought out for his company. When he returned to Australia in early 1918, exhausted to the point where he would never be the same, he had crowds of people coming to see him, wherever he was. Word spread like wildfire. His name is William Fighting Mac Mackenzie, and you really need to hear his story. In this program, the Australians have just arrived in France after being evacuated from Gallipoli. I'll pick up his story from there. With the Australians arriving in France from the Middle East, everyone was going to be in for a shock. The English were in for a shock because the Australians didn't come from a culture where there was the sort of rigid class structure that the English were used to at the time, showing extreme respect to their betters. The Australians were shocked at the English soldiers. They were shocked by how much more artillery fire there was and by the far greater intensity of the war on the Western Front. They were going to be shocked by the terrible casualties that they were going to suffer in some of the most horrific fighting that they found themselves in, especially when they were singled out as the elite shock troops of the British Empire to be used for the most impossible missions. Nothing captures the spirits of the Anzacs better than this little poem from the centenary Kui March reenactment 1915 from Gilgandra. The poem is read by a man who learnt it from his father. I'd just like to say a little word here, and it's a little thing my dad used to say. We are the men of Anzac, the ANZAC. We cannot shoot, we don't salute. What bloody good are we? But when we get to Berlin, the Kaiser, he will say, Hock, hock, mein Gott, what a bloody odd lot to get six bob a day. The Germans were in for a surprise too. The Australian fighting men were outstanding and won fame from the many extremely bloody fights that they were in. They blunted the last German offensive, which looked like it was on the very brink of success until their attack was crushed by the Australians at the Battle of Vier-Bretonneur on the third anniversary of the landings at Gallipoli. You get the idea of what the Australians on the Western Front were like from this story about a British brigadier who came across a wounded Australian soldier and had this exchange with him. The man had his right hand almost blasted off and was sitting in a trench when he was spotted by the brigadier who asked him what he was doing. I'm resting from a grenade fight. The brigadier replied, in your condition you'd be far better off in a field hospital. No, I'm going back to the fight, the Anzac protested in his lazy, laconic manner. You'll be no good there with your wounded right hand, the brigadier explained to him. That's okay, mate, I'm left-handed. 
came the dry reply from the battle-hardened Aussie. Okay, so that's a bit of a stretch, but it captures how I feel about our incredible fighting men of the First World War. Australia suffered the highest percentage of casualties of all countries that fought in the First World War. 330,000 Australians served. Of those, 215,000 were killed, wounded or captured, a casualty rate of nearly 65%. 60,000 of those were killed, nearly one in five. Based on today's population, that would be the equivalent of having over 1.3 million men killed. These men were all volunteers. Australia was the only country in World War I not to introduce conscription. Australia's Prime Minister, Billy Hughes, wanted to bring in conscription. He had two referendums to achieve that. One in 1916, which nearly got up, and one in 1917, which definitely didn't. The Anzacs were against conscription. They wanted to fight shoulder to shoulder with men who wanted to be there, not men who were forced to be. Many of the Anzacs were deeply religious, but that is something that the people who tell the stories today never talk about. Well, sometimes they can't entirely avoid it. Even those men who weren't deeply religious, as I've talked about in a previous program, wanted a decent Christian burial. Delivering on that was sometimes almost impossible. Sometimes close to suicidal. And this program's about the man who made sure that they got what they wanted with total disregard for his own safety. Most people have a feeling for what it was like fighting in the trenches. And like most things today, where people rely on their feelings rather than the facts, most people have a completely wrong idea of what it was like fighting in the trenches. So let me tell you about it. Unlike Gallipoli, where the men were not often relieved from manning the trenches, in France, soldiers only spent a small time of each month in the very front-line trenches. Behind the front-line trenches, in the case of a threatened or actual enemy breakthrough of the front-line trenches, there were men in the support trenches. If the front-line trenches were in danger, then the men in the support trenches would be sent forward to bolster those men and hopefully to prevent any enemy successes. Further back, behind the support trenches, were the reserve trenches. They were in case the situation of the front line and the support trenches were in danger of being overwhelmed. Obviously, the amount of action the soldiers in these different trenches saw varied a lot. The front line trenches would be sending men forward into no man's land for night patrols. Sometimes they'd run into an enemy patrol. Often these patrols left each other alone rather than have a fight. There was enough fighting without needing to pick an unnecessary fight. Sometimes one side conducted a trench raid on the enemy's trenches opposite them. They were usually for a variety of purposes, capturing prisoners so that they could be interrogated to learn things about the enemy, capturing papers and documents in those enemy trenches that might have useful information. You could find out what unit was in the sector. If it was an elite unit, that would be a bad sign. If it was a low-rated unit, then things probably would stay quiet there. Your command also wanted to find out if there were any problems that the enemy were experiencing in that sector. Trench raids were also used to keep soldiers in fighting form. There's an old saying that war is 99% boredom and 1% sheer terror. 
So when the soldiers weren't doing a uniquely aggressive warlike activity, they'd be doing something more mundane, repairing their trenches, improving their dugouts, digging new lines, carting the enormous quantities of supplies needed up to the front, like ammunition, food, clothing, timber, barbed wire, pickets, corrugated iron, duckboards, sandbags, wire netting, telephone wire, etc., etc., Carrying them by hand was the only way they could get to the forward trenches. There was no way vehicles or animals could be used in the area up to and including the front line. Even during times when there wasn't a big push on, there were casualties, men falling sick, etc. Shelling went on all the time, some just random which killed or injured men. Trench foot was a common problem in waterlogged trenches. And for most of the war, the Germans held the high ground and the Australians, British, French, Canadians, etc. held the low waterlogged ground. Then there was trench fever, influenza, pneumonia and frostbite. The sanitary conditions in the frontline trenches were terrible. In World War II, 85.8% of men in hospitals were just plain sick, not wounded, not a battle casualty. It's not unreasonable to expect some similar figures from World War I. The trench lines were about 20 kilometres wide. Beyond that, life continued as normal for the people who lived there. The one obvious difference from peacetime in these areas behind the lines that weren't affected by war was the complete absence of men of fighting age, leaving only young boys and old men. For some years, the orders of the British Army for the Western Front, and therefore the Australian Army, was that chaplains like Fighting Mac of our story weren't allowed to go to the frontline trenches. It was thought that seeing a chaplain killed would be bad for morale. At Gallipoli, it had been impossible to police this rule, but there were more military police and overall much tighter security to prevent most chaplains from going forward on the Western Front. But if you've been listening in to my previous episodes of this program, you'll know that Mac was not most chaplains. He obeyed orders, unless his men needed him. And that meant the orders didn't apply. The most dangerous position in the trench system was what was called the sacrifice line. It was called that for the obvious reason. It was well in front of the main trenches. And I've got a good story to tell you about the sacrifice line. As I said, Mac was ordered to stay out of the frontline trenches as a Salvation Army chaplain. But for Mac, some orders got in the way of serving God by being with his men when they needed him most, the comfort that only he could bring them. An old sergeant related this story about Mac. You see, a mile or two ahead of the main body, just behind the barbed wire entanglements, was what we called the sacrifice line. Each battalion sent a platoon there. No chaplain was supposed to go so far forward. But Major Mackenzie was back and forth more than any one of the men. Sometimes he'd overtake a man going up with a pack of food on his back. He'd lift it onto his own back to give the man a spell. He was always doing that sort of thing. They say a Christian dies once but is born twice. A non-believer is born once and dies twice, the second more terrible death, meaning their soul will not be in God's presence for all of eternity. It was as Jesus explained to the Pharisee Nicodemus in John 3, 5-6, to 
Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When Jesus said, Verily, verily, twice, that was a major flag. It meant really pay attention to this part. So being born again the second time is what lets Christians die what most people call a good death, which is only the death of the body. A Christian isn't worried about their body dying. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ meant an end to that eternal death of being kept from God's presence. Because of that, 1 Corinthians 15.55 says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? When there was a fight about to happen, Mac knew that he'd never see some of his boys who were in the fight on this earth again. So he always made extreme efforts to be there for them. Keeping him out of the front line wasn't easy. One time to get Mac away from the front line, he was ordered to go to the rear to officiate over some parades. That would keep him out of harm's way, the commanders thought. Well, when Mac got back to where he'd been sent, performed the required service as quickly as he could, then he commandeered a bike and set off pedalling furiously towards the battlefront, at least as far forward as conditions allowed him to travel by bike. Then he continued on foot. He had to travel in the pitch dark. You never, ever lit a match near the front line, or a sniper would have you the moment it flared. He had to sneak past shaky and scared sentries who would probably have shot him on sight without a second thought. He had to negotiate the maze of trenches, ruins and shell holes until finally he arrived at the 4th Battalion, just in time for the big push over the top. The news of his arrival spread quickly down the line of trenches, diggers excitedly passing the words along the line, The Padre's here! Here's the Scottish pal singers with the bells of hell from Oh, What a Lovely War. The bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me. And the little devils heard they sing-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me. Oh, death, where is thy sting-a-ling-a-ling? Oh, grave thy victory. Oh, the bells of hell go ting-a-ling-a-ling for you but not for me. Whenever possible, Mac held religious services in the trenches before any attack by his battalion. Letters from home were important to the troops' morale, but a lot of soldiers either weren't being sent letters or simply had no one at home to write to them. In our modern age of texting and emails, Skype, FaceTime, etc., we don't even give instantaneous communications a second thought, but during the Great War, snail mail was the only kind there was, and hopefully, now that you understand the mechanics and the need, listen to this story of what the multifaceted Mac did for our troops to keep them in good morale, and what he did also happened to work wonders for many folks back home. It was always special for the boys when the mail came in, well, for the troops who got letters from home. Anyway, but not everyone did. The looks on the faces of the men who didn't get letters ever haunted Mac, and he wanted to do something about it. But what? So while he was at Gallipoli, he wrote to the newspapers back in Australia. I wonder if I could get 20 friends to each write a letter a month addressed to a lonely soldier, care of myself. 
There are quite a few who receive no letters and such. One with generally chatty news in it would be most acceptable. I could distribute a hundred letters or parcels weekly with profit. By profit he meant to lift the spirit of the soldiers who received them. Mac didn't have to write a second letter to the newspapers. At the beginning he received an average of 1,000 letters a week. Many were from mothers who had lost their own sons in the fighting. For them, writing letters to some young boy fighting there was a comfort. Besides the letters, scores of packets and parcels arrived from all over Australia for the lonely soldiers. Later, during the war, his letter to a lonely soldier campaign saw him getting more than 3,000 letters plus parcels and journals with every post. He was answering hundreds of letters personally, handwriting, not typed and printed on his printer. He was afraid that it could reach 5,000 letters per post. One time, while he was back in England for a brief leave, Mac took time out to write hundreds of letters to the people back home who'd been writing to the boys. Sadly, those letters never got through. He recorded in his diary that the letters were delivered per torpedo to the Merry Mermaids. The boat carrying his handwritten letters had been sunk by a U-boat. The Lonely Soldier's letters made Max a household name throughout all of Australia. All of the letters were addressed to him. This is leaving aside the vast numbers of letters he wrote home to the families of soldiers in all sorts of circumstances. Mac also personally wrote countless letters to the folks back home. In particular, he wrote to the families of soldiers who had died. He often wrote up to 40 letters a day on top of his gruelling schedule for everything else that he felt compelled to get done. It was an impossible thought that he would give himself a break when the boys were offering everything they had, their lives. The letters were personal and related to the boys that he was writing about. He had a phenomenal memory, and his tireless moving amongst the troops meant that he knew them and wrote deeply personal letters about the husbands, fathers and sons. The most important part of Mac's work was the most unpleasant, and the way he carried it out was what made him a treasured person among the Anzacs and their families back home. More of that in my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg beer slogan, probably the best beer in the world. If you liked this program, you will definitely love my other program, C-Y-K-I-A-E. What's that about? Well, you have to listen in, I guess.